This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Inflaming the debate. President Trump uses a foreign ally to exploit the partisan divide here and punish his political opponents. Keep America great because we have these socialists want to take it away from us. That's score settling as a new poll shows trouble for the president against several of his 2020 rivals. Will the politics of division work a second time? And recession jitters. President Trump said to be rattled as economic alarm bells cause a wild week on Wall Street. Can the president convince voters that he is still the best guy for their money? Let's not do the gloom and doom. It's all good. I'll speak to White House trade advisor Peter Navarro next. Plus, first in the South, 2020 Democrats head to South Carolina and make their pitches to African-American voters. I've got to work that much harder to make sure the voters have heard our message. But can anyone knock former Vice President Joe Biden out of the lead? Presidential candidate Mayor Pete Buttigieg joins me exclusively in moments. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is keeping an eye on our retirement accounts. President Trump is wrapping up a working vacation at his Bedminster Resort, but he doesn't seem to have used that time to unwind. Instead, last night and this morning, he appears to have been scrolling through Twitter, sharing messages about the crowd size at his recent New Hampshire event, retweeting praise for himself from fans, praising conservative media allied with him and heaping scorn on the rest of the news media. This weekend, the president's ire extended even to the 90-year-old grandmother of one Muslim-American congresswoman after he shattered yet another norm by pushing a foreign ally, Israel, to ban two Democratic congresswomen highly critical of Israel from an official visit. This all happening as the nation recovers from a week of whiplash on Wall Street. Fears of a coming recession spiked on the heels of a key economic indicator, what's called an inverted yield curve on Wednesday, when short-term bond interest rates briefly went higher than long-term rates. Those recession fears reverberating from the farmers in the middle of President Trump's trade war all the way up to the president himself, who this week postponed some planned tariffs on Chinese goods that were set to take effect over the holiday season. Joining me now to discuss this and much more, White House Trade Advisor uh, Peter Navarro. Thanks so much for being here. I know you got a little summer cold, here, summer cold, so we appreciate your, your taking the time getting up early on a Sunday. So l- let me start with the economy, obviously the basic state of the economy, in addition to the inverted yield curve, which has happened before every recession in the last half century. I know it is now since flattened, but there, it did exist there for a little bit on Wednesday. Nine major countries are either in recession or on the brink of one perhaps even a bigger concern than the inverted yield curve. Other than pushing the Fed to lower interest rates, what is the administration doing to stave off any potential recession from coming here? Uh, So let's clear up this uh, inverted yield curve thing. I didn't write the book on it, but I've written several books about the yield curve as a leading economic indicator. Technically, we did not have a yield curve inversion. An inverted yield curve requires a big spread between the short and the long end. What As we had is a, a smaller one. Correct. Well, all we've had is a flat yield curve. Well, it was, it was inverted for well, a no, little that, bit. That's not technically an inversion. It's a flat curve, which is a very weak signal of any possibility. And in this case, 
In this case, the flat curve is actually the result of a very strong Trump economy. What we see now is foreign capital coming to the best game on the globe, which is the Trump economy. It's going into our stock market. But when it goes into the bond market on the long end, it bids up bond prices and bids down yields, and you get the flat curve. The best thing we need to do now, and I think this is part of the bullish scenario I I have, uh, the Federal Reserve is going to embark on a very aggressive interest rate cuts through the end of the year. That'll lower the short end. But more importantly, it'll stop suppressing our investment directly and suppressing our exports indirectly. Let me ask you, what do you mean by suppressing? Because there's plenty, as you know, there is lots of liquidity. There's lots of money out there. $15 trillion being borrowed uh, from Germany, from from other countries in Europe, from Japan, uh, where the interest rate is negative or zero percent. Uh, And what I'm hearing from experts is, the issue as to why this money's not being invested is because of instability, because of the trade war with China and because of political instability in the U.S. So, so here's what we know. Let's look at the Q2 numbers. We came in at 2.1 percent. Uh, when the Fed started raising rates, it raised it over 100, base, 100 basis points. Broad consensus, too far, too fast. At the same time it was doing that, the dollar went up by almost 10 percent. So when you look at the Q2 data, 2.1 percent, we should have came in at three. We lost two-thirds of a point simply on exports alone due to the indirect currency effect. And we lost some in commercial real estate because of the uncertainty over what the Fed policy was going to do. And we had an inventory drawdown, which will bounce back. You don't think the trade war has anything to do with this? Let me just say, the Fed chair, when he lowered interest rates recently, uh, said it was because of, quote, trade tensions, which do seem to be having a significant effect on the economy. You you don't... You're not acknowledging that the trade war has anything to do with this? uh, So the Federal Reserve chairman should look in the mirror and say... I raise rates too far too fast, and I cost this economy a full percentage point of growth. And uh, I, interestingly, uh, earlier this week, I was, I was on television just before James Bullard, who's on the Board of Governors. And he basically is my best witness as to why we're going to have a very good economy. He said that the economy was strong. He also committed to interest rate reductions because, not because we have a weak economy, but because we can grow faster without generating inflation. That's the key thing here. What, the, what Jay Powell did not understand is that the Trump economy can grow at 3% without generating inflation, and that's what we should be doing. We also need help, not just from the Fed. We need help from Congress right now. The other thing that needs to fall into place for a really solid... Is the trade deal, the U.S.-MCA. U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. But, and let me just say, yeah. that's, a, that's at least a point of growth. There's several hundred thousand new jobs, 75,000 in the auto sector. And we think by early October, if Congress can rise above partisan politics... Past that, we'll have Federal Reserve rate cuts. And the the last thing is that's going to be really important. The European Central Bank has committed now to a very aggressive monetary easing that they're going to begin in September, cutting rates, quantitative easing. Why does that matter for us? That'll lift Europe. They'll buy more of our exports, and that'll help everything. So I see a bullish scenario here. All that the trade deal, that the trade wars and the tariffs have anything to do with this? That's correct. The tariffs tariffs are, are hurting China. China is bearing the entire burden of the tariffs That's in terms of consumer. Hang on. What a lot of experts this say. Is, this is what this expert says. What, what we see here unequivocally is that China is bearing the burden mm-hmm. by lowering their prices. Right. They lowered the value of the yuan by 12 percent to right. offset the tariffs. And here's the here's the most important part of the pain on them rather than pain on us. 
We're seeing production, investment, supply chain, sourcing move. But Peter, it's hemorrhaging from China. Listen and to the good news is it's going into not it's going into Southeast Asia and it's coming here. Listen That's to the president America. of the Minnesota Farmers Union, Gary Wordish, who told CNN this week uh, that even the president's supporters are being hurt and struggling in this trade war, even with uh, the money that the administration is giving them to help them through this tough pass p- passage. Uh, t- take a listen. Words and Twitters and tweets, that doesn't, that doesn't pay the farmers' bills. That doesn't solve the problem we're dealing with. And, and you know, this one, like I said earlier, this one's self-inflicted by our president. And um, we definitely agreed with him at the beginning. But we, it doesn't appear that there's a plan B. These are people on the front lines, and they're saying the trade war is directly hurting them, and China is not bearing all the burden of this. They are bearing the burden of this. So there's a couple of things to say here. First of all, this president has the backs of farmers, and all, all the money we're taking in our tariffs, a lot of that is going right to the farmers to keep us whole. Let's make no mistake about it. China is targeting those farmers to buckle our knees. I think whenever we talk about the China issue, it's really important to just go over the seven things we're fighting for. It's the cyber. And we can't the, go into all seven. I know you, there are seven. Let's just pause well, it right now. Would you acknowledge, po- pause would you acknowledge that Let's there's the seven Chinese. significant problems, including killing Americans with fentanyl and opioids, that this president is standing up to China? Would you acknowledge that Bill Clinton got China into the WTO and that George Bush, Joe Biden, and Barack Obama stood by while we lost 70,000 factories I will acknowledge the fact 5 million that there is, there is pretty much broad consensus in the United States that China is a bad actor. And Absolutely. on Capitol Hill, and they are behind this president. The farmers are behind this president. Farmers the are farmers starting to lose understand patience. understand the pain. The Iowa Soybean the Association president. Let me just read this to you. The Iowa Soybean Association president, Lindsey Grenier, says, quote, short-term stair-step subsidies, which is what the administration is offering these farmers, are a poor remedy for trade. She says, your negotiations right now with China are all talk and no action. When are the, when are the farmers going to have uh, this off their let's, back? Let's talk about, about the strategy here, because there's a very clear strategy. Going back to Mar-a-Lago in, in the uh, spring of 2017, the president has always been willing to talk to the Chinese. But when the Chinese have failed to deliver, when they've reneged on their commitments, he's taken action. And if you look at the arc of the it's negotiations... It's been a year and these guys are still suffering, If you look at the arc of the negotiations, 100 days after Mar-a-Lago, they didn't do anything, so we had a 301 investigation signaling to China to do things. We had to add tariffs when mm-hmm. they failed to do things. Then... We went to uh, Buenos Aires. They made us more promises. We went to Osaka. They made us more promises. Here's the thing. We've talked with the Chinese for decades about changing their ways. Right. They are not going to change their ways unless the president actually has action that backs that up. But here's the thing. You and the administration keep on saying that the entire burden of these tariffs and this trade war is being borne by China. absolutely true. A study from researcher at Harvard, the University of Chicago... The IMF and the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston in May found that U.S. importers are shouldering about 95% of the price change from the tariffs, and China is shouldering only 5%. See, that dog won't hunt. Let's do some math here, right? You put on 200, 10% tariffs on $200 billion. Are you saying that their research is Hang wrong? On. Hang on. Just do some math with me. $200 billion, we put on a 10% tariff, and China devalues their currency by 12%. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it, are consumers bearing anything on that? No. We have seen absolutely no evidence in the price data. The consumer, that's not showing up in the consumer price index. China if is slashing their any, prices. These aren't hurting anybody in the United they're States. They're not hurting anybody here. Then why? Okay? They're did, hurting China. They're then why did you call it a, when the president 
delayed these tariffs that were supposed to hit, that would have hit in Christmas. Uh, why did you call it a Christmas present to the American people to delay, that, to delay those tariffs if that doesn't specifically suggest that the tariffs would have been borne by American consumers here? Let me suggest uh, the wisdom of that decision, because I, I was there when... when so you're saying that the tariffs are great and you're not let, imposing the tariffs are great. Both. Let me answer this. Go ahead. Okay? So I was in the Oval Office when we had executives come in and they said, look, Let's wait till December 15th because we bought all of our stuff that's going to be on the shelves and we did it in dollar-based contracts, which mean we don't have any ability to shift the burden to the Chinese. But what we're also doing, Mr. President, is we're, we're moving our supply chain and manufacturing out of China as fast as we can. So the president made a wise decision with build goodwill with the Chinese and which protects consumers from any possible Christmas on kind of impacts. And as once we get past that, these businesses are b- doing their contracts in a way which won't harm consumers. So we're in a situation here mm-hmm. where consumers have not been hurt. China's bearing the whole burden. And guess what? Consumers spend $14 trillion a year. If you put 10% tariffs on $300 billion, that's $30 billion. You know how much that is? That's one-fifth of a so- percent a possible impact. We're it's at, nothing. We're out of time, but I do want to give you an opportunity to just address the fact that you keep saying that, that China's bearing all the burden, and that goes against what we're hearing from researchers at Harvard, the University of Chicago, the IMF, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, former Trump advisor Gary Cohn, who I know you clashed with quite a bit, <laughs> the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, which is very conservative, uh, economist after economist sure. says that you're not being straight with the American people on who's bearing the burden of these tariffs. Why are all these people lying and you telling the truth? So all I would say to you is, is look at the data. There's absolutely no evidence, no evidence whatsoever. Did you look that at that American study I told consumers, you about? There's no evidence whatsoever that American consumers are bearing any of this. We know that China is slashing their prices. They're slashing the value of the yuan. They're hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging their manufacturing base. Uh, be happy to look at some of those studies, but I can tell you this. This president is committed to standing up to China and getting a good deal for the American people, and he will continue to do what needs to be done. The strategy has been put in place going back to Mar-a-Lago, and mm. we are winning. All right. I think there are a lot of people out there who don't feel as though we're well, winning. Well, certainly you, you don't, but uh, this has been a good exchange. I would simply say uh, that this, this, is, this is the battle of our time, because uh, if we don't get it right with China structurally, that's going to harm not just our economy and our workers. Well, it's going to harm the global economy. Good luck with the trade deal. We yes. all hope that it happens. Good to be here. We all hope that it's successful. Thank you so good much, to be Peter here. Navarro. It's a huge day on the campaign trail in South Carolina, especially for one particular candidate hoping to pick up momentum with African-American voters with whom he's really been struggling. What's Mayor Pete's plan to break through? I'll ask him live. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. This weekend, Democratic presidential hopefuls are in one of the most crucial states to winning over one of the most crucial voting blocks, African-American voters. This morning, South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg will attend church services in South Carolina as he faces something of an uphill climb in the polls with black voters, especially with those who hold some deep religious convictions. Joining me now live from Georgetown, South Carolina, is 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Mayor Pete, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. You've been struggling to win over African-American voters uh, during this campaign so far, <clears throat> pardon me, even as you've been rising. 
Uh, less than half of black Protestant Christians support same-sex marriage. You're headed to a black church later today. Do you think that the fact that you're gay is part of what might be holding you back with at least some black voters? I think most black voters, like most voters in general, want to know what the candidates are actually going to do to improve their lives. And when I talk to black voters in particular, there's a sense of having been taken for granted in politics and a sense that candidates haven't always been speaking to them or earning their trust. So uh, more than anything, uh, I think my job is to make sure that I explain how our vision for increasing the number of black entrepreneurs is going to lead to economic empowerment, how the part of my Douglas plan for tackling institutional racism that works on health will help close the maternal mortality gap. I think uh, a lot of these other factors start to wash away once voters understand what it's going to mean for them that you versus the others are in office. But uh, we've got six months to make sure we get that message out, make sure we demonstrate that uh, I'm serious about the things I would do as president. And that's how I plan to earn support among black voters, whether it's here in South Carolina or across the country. You've been uh, critical in the past of Vice President Mike Pence's uh, positions on LGBT issues and the fact that his religious conservatism on these issues uh, obviously influences an anti-LGBT view uh, on policies. You've said, quote, I have a problem with religion being used as a justification to harm people, and especially in the LGBT community, uh, calling same-sex marriage a moral issue. Obviously, this is not the same thing, but explain how it's different that there are Democratic voters who might have an issue uh, with LGBTQ rights. Uh, How is that different from Vice President Pence if they're both based in religious views? Well, I think back to my experience in Indiana when I was running for re-election after I came out in a community that's generally democratic, but also quite socially conservative. And I just laid out the case on the kind of job that I was doing. And what I found was a lot of people were able to move past old prejudices and uh, move into the future. This is not an easy conversation for a lot of people who have frankly been brought up Uh, in a certain way and uh, are struggling to get onto the right side of history. But I also believe that this conversation is picking up speed, that it's a healthy conversation, and that where it leads is an understanding that all marginalized people need to stand together at a time when so many Americans in so many different ways, especially under this presidency, are coming under attack. You told me on the show two weeks ago that you believe President Trump is a white nationalist. Given that, do you think that it's a racist act to cast a vote for President Trump in 2020? Well, at best, it means looking the other way on racism. But I think uh, a lot of people are wondering what kind of deal even that is supposed to be. You know, you, you look at what he said in that rally, you've got no choice but to vote for me. And if you look at the numbers, basically what he's saying is, uh, all right, I want you to uh, look the other way on the racism, tolerate the negativity, uh, uh, accept the instability of my administration, uh, because I am going to deliver for you job growth almost as good as the Obama years. That's what his argument amounts to right now. And it's part of the reason why he's unpopular. Let's talk about gun control, if we can. You've said that, quote, weapons of war don't belong in our neighborhoods. You served in Afghanistan, so you know what a weapon of war is. Your 2020 opponent, uh, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, supports mandatory buybacks for so-called assault weapons, certain types of semi-automatic weapons. You've stopped short of that. But if you think so-called assault weapons don't belong in our neighborhoods, as you stated, 
Why wouldn't you support mandatory buybacks of assault weapons? Well, I think we've got a lot of work to do right now on the basics. Universal background checks, red flag laws, a ban on new sales of these assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Things that the majority, in many cases the vast majority of Americans support, that still haven't got done. I think we've got some fundamentals we've got to take care of. And then we'll work to figure out how to make sure that uh, we're not forever the only country with more guns than people. President Trump met with his national security team on Friday to weigh this new possible peace deal with the Taliban that theoretically could end the war in Afghanistan. Uh, You have said that you agree with the president that U.S. service members need to come home and soon. Uh, But I want to share with you what retired General David Petraeus, who led service members in Afghanistan and Iraq under President Obama, wrote in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago, quote, a complete military exit from Afghanistan today would be even more ill-advised and risky than the Obama administration's disengagement from Iraq in 2011. If the Trump administration orders a full pullout from Afghanistan, there is considerably less doubt about what will happen. Full-blown civil war and the reestablishment of a terrorist sanctuary, unquote. Now, you told me in the CNN debates that you would bring U.S. service members home within your first year as president. Do you support the president's potential peace deal in Afghanistan? And how do you respond to the concerns of General Petraeus? Well, the problem with the president's path is it seems to be dictated by the American political calendar. Uh, You add to that the fact that uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, any real role for the legitimately elected Afghan government. And it is a recipe for us winding up having to go back because of a problem that unfolds. Uh, Look, if we really want to leave well, and we're going to leave. Remember, leaving Afghanistan is the one thing that the right, the left, the Taliban, the government, uh, and the international community all agree on. So the real question here is, are we going to leave well or are we going to leave poorly? To do it right, we need to make sure we get the basic assurances about counterterrorism that we need and that the Afghan government is on the table so that there's a formula for stability. We have leverage in this conversation. It is in the interests of even the Taliban uh, to make sure that uh, we have the right kind of political settlement. Uh, but there has to be an actual strategy, and it can't be driven by the timeline of uh, the American election. It has to be driven uh, by our ability to get a deal that makes sense. You told me that you wanted to get U.S. service members out within the first year. I mean, is that, is that not too quickly? Of course I want to get. I, I'd rather we be done with this today. I mean, right now. Somebody is packing their bags for Afghanistan uh, 18 years after 9-11, wondering why we're there. It's very clear that we need to bring this to a close. Now, we may need some kind of special operations or intelligence capability, just as we would in many hotspots around the world, to protect American interests. But right now, the only way that we can get to that withdrawal, bring this thing to a close, is to have a political settlement that has the parties at the table. And while it's good to hear that there are talks going on, it's concerning to hear that those talks are leaving the Afghan government at the sidelines. Let's turn to the economy. You just heard my interview with the president's trade advisor, Peter Navarro. President Trump says taking his tariffs off China now would be, quote, economic surrender, saying the U.S. cannot make a trade deal without dialing up more pressure. You have vowed to lift those tariffs if you become president. What makes you think China would make a trade deal with you as president without the kind of pressure that President Trump is now exerting with these tariffs? Well, we have a lot of different forms of leverage in the relationship, but it's also a fool's errand to think you're going to be able to get China to change the fundamentals of their economic model 
by poking them in the eye with some tariffs. And by the way, uh, despite all, all of the noise from, uh, uh, from that previous interview, there's some basic facts here that you can't escape. And one of them is that American farmers are getting killed. I was just in Iowa uh, in rural parts of the state talking with a lot of farmers, who, many of whom uh, are Republicans or, or supported this president, and are now asking the question, how much longer are we supposed to take one for the team? The president has said repeatedly that he's on the cusp of getting a deal. The president has failed to deliver a deal, and I expect he will continue to do so. And in the meantime, we're paying the cost of these tariffs. We're going to see even more in the prices of consumer goods. The president apparently is aware of this because he said he was going to delay them till Christmas. What are we supposed to do after Christmas? There is clearly no strategy for dealing with the trade war in, in a way that will actually lead to results for American farmers or American consumers. And part of the reason is that uh, this is not what it's going to take uh, to actually guide China into a different direction. This is, gonna, this is about a lot more uh, than just some tariffs. Look, you consider the, the position that China is in now, and you consider our loss of domestic competitiveness because we're not even investing at home in education, infrastructure, health, the things that are going to allow us to be a world leader into the 21st century. If we're neglecting that, uh, none of this is going to matter. Meanwhile, you've got an economy that is not working for most Americans. There's a big debate going on right now over whether we're on the cusp of a recession. Mm -hmm. I think we probably are, but the more important thing is even during an expansion, most Americans haven't been able to get ahead. That is a huge problem, and the president has made it abundantly clear that he doesn't care. When it comes to rural America, I think to him, it's just the scenery that he sees out the helicopter window on the way to his golf course. And when it comes to American consumers, he is completely out of touch with the impact it's going to have on the prices we pay for our goods as a result of a trade war in which both sides will lose. South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thank you so much for your time. Good luck on the campaign trail. Thanks. Good to be with you. Even grandmothers apparently not off limits in the president's latest political battle. But why is a key U.S. ally joining this fight? That's next. If for some reason I wouldn't have won the election, these markets would have crashed. And that'll happen even more so in 2020. You have no choice but to vote for me because your 401ks down the tubes. Everything's going to be down the tubes. So whether you love me or hate me, you got to vote for me. President Trump making an economic pitch to voters in New Hampshire after a tumultuous week for markets and growing fears of recession. But is the president getting nervous? Let's discuss. I saw you pumping your hand there yeah. because you're happy that for once he's focused on the economy, the economy. instead of great. other issues, shall we say. Absolutely. But do you, or do you get concerned at all about the president tying his future too, too closely to the economy, given the fact that who knows what's going to happen? Well, obviously it, it is, but he's tied to the economy, whether it's, I mean, you might as well pump it when it's good and, and take advantage of it. And look, I think everything this president is doing, from his tax policy to his regulatory policy, and I disagree with, with the with the studies you talked about, to trade policy are all positive things for him on this economy. Listening to Peter Navarro in the, in, in the previous interview, I'm telling you, the folks in southwestern Pennsylvania, blue-collar Democrats, not just there, but all across those states that Trump has to win, are all cheering and saying, go get him. 
we we're, we're tired of uh, we're tired of the Chinese, you know, uh, stealing our technology and and taking our jobs. And you're standing up for it. You're fighting. We may. You, I understand it's going to be a long haul, but someone's finally fighting, and yeah. that's what they're looking at. Until the bill shows up, right? Until they actually have to pay for this president's policies. With the with the the, the president is pushing this sort of. All of us have gotten it in our inbox. These get rich schemes. If you do this real quick, send some money here, and we'll make you this much money. Uh, this president inherited. Uh, a good economy from President Barack Obama. Uh, the Obama administration had to rescue us from the ditch, put us back on track, led the way to the most sustained long-term job growth that we had seen. And now this president has come in with whatever you want to describe as economic policy. Certainly you don't pay attention to the facts. We heard that in the earlier segment, uh, a rejection of all economists and studies that are demonstrating the failure of this administration. He's the one that has started a tariff war. He's the one that uh, provided the tax breaks to the top 1%. And now folks uh, are getting a sense of the reality and the impact of it. Uh, They don't like it. It has him nervous, and that's why he's overcompensating uh, on this issue of the economy. Listen, I think it's great he's talking about the economy. I agree with Rick. <laughs> I don't think it's great that he's talking about taking it hostage. He does have a great economy. You can talk about the good things, but a lot of people are wondering how long the good times are going to roll. Even while the economy is good, they've spent a ton of government money. They've cut taxes. There's subsidies for yeah, farmers. They've yeah. cut interest rates. And so if the bottom does fall out somewhere, people are nervous because this is an administration that projects instability. And I noticed in the interview with Peter Navarro earlier, they're already starting to set and assign blame to other people. This is part of the chaos. This is part of the uncertainty when he's saying, oh, well, we're going to blame the Fed and we're going to blame Congress. It makes it feel like something bad is coming, and that's a harm in itself. What do you think? Well, he's rooting for a bad economy here. That's exactly what he was saying in that speech. If he is not elected president, he is saying that our economy is going to be in the take. Look, there are bad economic indicators just this last week, and he's running scared right now. But if you have the opportunity to talk to the American people, why aren't you talking to them about how you're going to lift wages? Why aren't you talking to that Lowe's worker who's losing their job? I mean, those are the things that he should be talking about. And if he does it, and if this is the... I'm rooting against the economy pitch to the American people. He's going to lose. I want to uh, bring in the subject of this week. Uh, Israel banned uh, Congresswoman uh, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan and Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, uh, who are very harsh critics of Israel, uh, from visiting over their support of the movement to boycott Israel. It's a move that came after President Trump uh, called for it, called for Israel to not let them in, even though Israel had previously said they would. Uh, Tlaib was later granted uh, permission on humanitarian grounds to visit her grandmother in the West Bank. She declined. Uh, citing uh, uh, humanitarian reasons and saying uh, her free speech um, prompted the president to tweet, quote, Israel was very respectful and nice to Representative Rashida Tlaib, allowing her permission to visit her, quote, grandmother. I have no idea why that's in scare quotes there. As soon as she was granted permission, she grandstanded and loudly proclaimed she would not visit Israel. Could this possibly have been set up? Israel acted appropriately. What would you make of all that? Support for Israel has always been bipartisan. And right now, Donald Trump is throwing that out the door just by a simple tweet. And I think time and time again, what we've seen in our internal polling is that voters, especially Trump voters, are sick and tired of policymaking via tweet. They're sick and tired of that. And it is a sad day. I think anyone around this table would agree We don't agree on much, but what I can say we agree on is that every member of Congress should be allowed to go to Israel, and that is clear. Do you agree with that? They decided to not go on a bipartisan trip and go on a trip sponsored by an organization that's anti-Semitic, that has put out vile, even blood libel things. The group MIFTA, right. Yeah, th- this is a, this is a, a, a they align themselves with neo-Nazi groups at times against MIFTA the did. Jews. Right, yeah. this, and, and this is the group sponsoring them. 
Israel has every right to say, say that though that group should not be a sponsor. If you want to come to Israel with the bipartisan group, I guarantee you Israel would have said yes. If they wanted to, you saw, they said yes when to come visit your grandmother, but you're going to be sponsored by a group that wants the call for the destruction of the state of Israel. They have every single right to say no. They may have the right to do it. It is the wrong decision to make for a democratic government. Uh, I think it's bad policy uh, for the state of Israel. Uh, I think it does damage uh, in a lot of ways, the, the, I think the goodwill that has been built, Israel is an ally, a very strong ally of the United States. These two women, these two members of Congress, uh, like it or hate it and disagree or agree with their positions, they are the appropriators uh, in this form of government here in this country. They, are, they also have a responsibility for oversight. Um, I think it is a Andrew, bad idea you, to push them question. out. I will say this. If, if a white I've, nationalist group I've, said, said, said to some Dutch parliamentarian, yeah. we're going to invite you over here, would the United States say, oh, yeah, come over and have these white nationalists? So sponsor? let me say would this. Would you say I, yes? I think the, would you these, say yes? these members of Congress ought to be measured on their record on what their comments are the and on what their is, obligation I, the is to the is, American people. Agree. I, 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 say, I agree with that. Israel has a law in the books that prohibits the entry of foreign nationals who support BDS, which is boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Yeah, since 2017. Since that... 2017. And they're on the record supporting those kind of movements. Now, it's a question. Did she want to go over there to participate yes. in the protest, or did she want to visit her grandmother? Yeah. And that has been mixed. And so once she appealed on humanitarian reasons, Israel said, you can come in. She said, no, I want to have express my I want to, this, right. so this, that is I want to this, join with the people who want to destroy the state this of Israel. This is a place where both J Street, which is on the left, uh, as well as APAC agree, mm-hmm. as well as uh, uh, Senator Lieberman, mm-hmm. who not one of us could argue is anti-Semitic in any way. I, listen, I've visited this, the state of Israel several times. As mayor of the city of Tallahassee, we had a sister city relationship with Ramaha Sharon. Uh, I think the more folks that you allow into Israel to get a firsthand look, meet with Palestinians as well as Israelis. This is their obligation as members of Congress. And guess what? I don't agree with anything Steve King says, but if they were to ban him, I would also be on the record as saying that is inappropriate. And as a member of Congress, he ought to be allowed to travel. All right, we're going to squeeze in a quick break. After two gun massacres in a matter of hours, 2020 Democrats are now promising bold action on guns. But could that jeopardize any action and their chances at winning the White House? Stay with us. We must, as a country, buy those weapons, take them off the streets altogether. There are millions of them. The narrative of for responsible gun owners that the federal government's going to come in and take away all of your guns, I think that feeds that. Democratic Division, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke calling for a mandatory buyback of assault weapons, which are some forms of semi-automatic weapon in the wake of the El Paso a terrorist attack. Other Democrats, such as Montana Governor Steve Bullock, skeptical. Uh, let's discuss. Uh, Sochi, I am old enough to remember when Democrats really were afraid of talking about any sort of gun control, basically between Al Gore's loss and uh, Hillary Clinton running mm-hmm. for president. There was like 16 years of Democrats really kind of tiptoeing it around until after mm-hmm. the Sandy Hook shooting. Has there been a real change here? Absolutely. The politics on this has really changed. Now you have 90% of the American people who support background checks. If you're a Republican running for um, Congress, if you're a Republican running in 2020, you are in some um, troubled waters if you're not supporting background checks. I think that what's going to happen here is the House hopefully will, I mean, they moved forward legislation here. And you're having an important conversation in our party right now about how exactly do you reduce gun violence, which I think the Republican Party isn't even having. What do you think, Amanda? 
It seems to me that there is broad consensus to expand background checks, possibly to include things like people who are repeated um, domestic violent offenders, to look at red flag laws so that we can get the guns out of the hands of the mentally ill, and also look at things like social media postings, um, possibly expulsions from school. And so there seems to be a lot of people interested in that kind of policy. So why are we going and talking about buybacks and pure out bans when there's so much opportunity right here in the middle? That's what I find confusing. You talk about a buyback, it's going to be difficult to administer, track, um, it's going to be expensive when there's so much more we could be doing on background checks, red uh, flag laws, but also educating the public on how to lock up the guns you have and keep them safe and out of the hands of children who too often die from accidental deaths. And, and Mayor Gillum, I mean, Amanda's a Republican yeah. and uh, S.E. Cup also a, a conservative. You hear uh, them, Republican women, moms, yeah. talking about uh, an uh, opening of the mind in terms of some forms of expanding background checks and things like that. Is, are some people in your party going too far uh, uh, and at risk alienating uh, people like Amanda and Essie? And I'm talking not in terms of 2020, but in terms of just getting sure. something passed. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, I, I think there is a reckoning that is happening right now in this country on guns. On the left... And on the right. Just yesterday, I think it was yesterday, Moms Demand Action led, you know, thousands of people in cities all across America, uh, suburban moms, urban moms and dads and others against uh, this issue. Uh, The truth is, is something has to give. Uh, The stranglehold that the NRA seems to have over Congress, over Washington, D.C., in my opinion, is insane. How can we put the priorities of one interest group above the safety, the security of the American people? Um, our kids are all going back to school uh, this week or next or after Labor Day. Uh, my wife and I are both terrified of the fact that for the last five years we've put and surrounded our kids with as much love and care as we possibly could. And now they're going to show up and have to learn what it means uh, to respond to uh, yeah. an active shooter drill in school. So something has to happen here. And we will have to eventually, in my opinion, get around to the conversation of what we do with weapons of war that are still out there on our streets. So your uh, fellow Pennsylvania Republican, Pat Toomey, Senator Pat Toomey, uh, tried to push for an expansion of background checks with another strong NRA supporter, uh, Joe Manchin. He didn't get very far. Does the Republican Party need to give a little bit on this? Uh, look, I think the Republican Party is going to focus on what the problem is. And the problem is not the gun. The problem is the people who are using those guns. The problem is not trying, trying to ban guns or try to put more gun laws in place because the people who are committing these crimes are breaking the law and they don't really care whether they violate gun crimes or not. The reality is what the Democrats are doing, and they, Pete Buttigieg was a good example here on your show this morning. You asked him the question, has that gone too far? And he said, well, let's do what we agree on. And then we can get to that. So even Democrats who are not calling for gun bans mm-hmm. are saying, well, let's do this first and then we can get the gun. No, but that's like I'm saying that, that there's no uh, it's not the opioids that are the problem. It's the people taking the opioids. That is ridiculous. In Ohio. Yeah, we have to 30 uh, seconds, 30 seconds. And they were able to mow down a whole yeah. group of people. That just doesn't make sense. It's the weapons and we got to get rid of. Thanks one and all. Appreciate it. Lady Liberty getting a Trumpian makeover. And we're not just talking about the poem this time. Stay with us. That's the state of the cartoon. Yeah. Mess with Lady Liberty and you might get torched. That's the subject of this week's State of the Cartoonian. The Statue of Liberty was in the news this week, specifically the Emma Lazarus poem chiseled next to her, which Trump administration official Ken Cuccinelli rewrote. 
Jimmy, you're tired and you're poor who can stand on their own two feet. Perhaps while they're editing history to fit the Trump administration's values, Lady Liberty might also benefit from a Trump-style makeover. I want to show them that I don't care. Although the First Lady is assuredly not menacing enough for the administration's approach to immigration. If they come into the United States illegally, they're getting out. The president would probably want her to be holding something other than a welcoming torch, perhaps a more menacing flamethrower. I said I could do much better than that. And while we're at it, what is she doing in New York City Harbor? She should be at the border. When they throw rocks like they did at the Mexico military and police, I say, consider it a rifle. Then when she needs to rest, she can lie down and the president will finally get his border wall. Fareed Zakaria is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.